So we get caught up in the wrong metrics, I think. So one thing is we have to decide what we consider, um, not just success, but what, you know, what constitutes beautiful ministry? What, and, and if we think about ministry in terms of beauty, as opposed to successful or effective, is it beautiful? And what is the, what are the markers of beauty in ministry? You know, when I'm part of a loving relationship, um, whether it's with God or with a, a loving adult or another peer, that's not something that I measure for its effectiveness. I measure it for its beauty. Welcome to the Missing Voices podcast. This podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. We are convinced that these often overlooked or forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So, with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. I'm Rachel Davis, one of your co-hosts, and during this series, we will hear from some of our partners, coaches, theologians, and friends of the Missing Voices Project. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Like Justin's experience, Kenda was also one of my professors at Princeton Seminary, but the first time I met Reverend Dr. Kenda Creasy-Dean was through a book. I was fortunate to be introduced to her work while sitting in a Flagler College youth ministry classroom. And just a couple years later, I finally met her in person while eating lunch on a class retreat. That turned into so much more. Not only is she a professor of practical theology at Princeton Theological Seminary, but she is a phenomenal pastor and leader of the church. From teaching and directing grants to advocating for a scrappy little church in New Jersey, she does it all. And always with a warm, just call me Kenda. We are thrilled to finally introduce to you our podcast listeners, Kenda Dean. Okay, everybody, we have Dr. Kenda Dean. So Kenda was one of my professors during my time at Princeton Theological Seminary, has come to be a good friend and mentor and an ongoing conversation partner who I will not leave alone. Uh, and I'm sorry, Kenda, even if you want to be left alone, it's not going to happen. I don't ever want you to leave me alone. <laughs> and somehow we convinced Kenda to come in and be a part of the Missing Voices Project with us as well, which is great. And she's actually helped coach us uh, through the design and, and sort of the beginning of all this. So Kenda has been a part of this from the earliest of days um, and has been really instrumental in helping us think about this. So we wanted to have you jump on here, Kenda, and talk with us about innovation and youth ministry. I know nobody else is talking about that right now. Um <laughs> And that's probably like a brand new idea to you. <laughs> <laughs> Besides but, everybody, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is so interesting that this buzzword of innovation has been attached or has been uh, thrown on top of what we're trying to do when we think about good ministry. But would love to just start with um, acknowledging first that you were a part of the design retreat with Justin Farrell. So those of you yeah. listening... There's another episode that you can pull up with Justin where we talk about design thinking and what he's doing over at Stanford and, and what he did with us in the Missing Voices Project. But Kendall was sort of our, our theologian, uh, our in-house theologian for that retreat. And it was fascinating to have Justin from Stanford teach on design thinking and Kendall to help us think about ministry and what we're doing and why. Uh, so, Kenda, why don't we start with that? What was that experience like for you to come alongside Justin with the design retreat and uh, to hear his take on innovation and design thinking? Uh, well, besides just sort of fangirling all over what he, everything he had to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, um, you know, I, I actually teach design thinking and to be able to hear him frame the work that he does as one of the people that originated that conversation hmm. was really um, a lot of light bulbs went off on that. Hmm. And um, including the utter emphasis on the humanity of the process, which hmm. 
the very first time I heard about design thinking was from a designer and, um, and she, and she also was a youth, uh, a youth volunteer. So she got the connection, but when she talked about design thinking, I'm like, well, this is, this is what ministry is. This all mission starts with listening, right? right. All mission starts with empathy. So from the beginning, you know, you, it, you hear through the lenses that you are, or through the equipment you already have. And I already had the, the ministry equipment. So every time I think about design thinking, it feels like preparation for ministry to me. Mm. Um, the problem of course, is that we designers are a lot more, and, and Justin went into this some, designers are a lot more comfortable with failure than people in ministry are. Mm. And so um, the design thinking process takes you through several opportunities for failing, right? And right. I think if we part ways, it's an accidental departure because um, people in ministry hop off the bus too soon. Um, if it didn't work, we're like, oh, okay, we're out of money, we're done. Um, well, and as opposed to, no, let's go back, let's think about that, let's reiterate that, let's give it a try. Yeah. Um, the other thing that design thinking adds to the ministry portfolio in a really explicit way is the need to um, try things out in a kind of a small, um, cheap, not very perfect way. Right. Or you make a judgment about how you want to go forward because the prototype stage is something that we miss a lot. We tend to think, okay, well, we've got, you know, this process we go through, we, if we're going to listen, we listen, we, 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 you know, get all the facts together about how, how this situation came to be. We, if we're, if we're on our toes, we think about our theological position on all of this and then we figure out what to do about it. And we tend to look at that solution as, as that's the thing. The problem yeah. with that is not all those solutions are good ones. We, we, <laughs> we miss the boat a lot. And because we don't try things out in a tentative way. So there's a provisional nature of design that ministry can learn from, you know, mm. not every decision we make has to be the forever after decision, right? Some of them just need to be test drives. Right. And um, anyway, so those are, those are two things that were on my mind, I guess, as Justin was talking during the um, retreat. And I just think there's a whole lot to learn from bringing these fields together. Right, so failure and and sort of our mindset about failure, how we embrace it, um, and then also like the the idea of prototyping or, or starting with a, a minimum viable product kind of idea, like something that right. is low scale, cheap, that you can go and test without, you know, necessarily betting the whole farm on it. So- It's not <clears> like a product, right? It's a, it might be a response, how you respond to somebody if you've got if you've got some kids in your office who've shoplifted right do you know exactly what the solution is going to be for them probably not right but so you float some provisional things to help them get reoriented um without betting the farm on any of them at the beginning right well why why do you think we're so afraid of failure like what is it i mean obviously we have an achievement culture that Right. You know, celebrates wins. And I think I, I think honestly, I think part of this is to um, it touches the nerve of a scarcity mindset within the church. So like we can only afford to have one shot at this or, yep. you know, if, if you try something and fail, then, you know, that it's so much bigger of a deal than it might actually be. But what's behind that? Like, why are we so afraid of failure, which in, is another way of saying afraid of trying new things? Uh, I think you nailed a lot of that. Right. I mean. Besides the fact that we're acculturated in this um, achievement-oriented society, um, besides the fact that churches are perpetually out of money, and so we feel like we don't have enough ever mm. to um, waste on something that doesn't work, um, and also um, failure just sucks. You know, we don't like it. <laughs> you know, we want to be we want to be winners. We want to be people on top of our game, et cetera. Everybody wants that. I don't know that that's a ministry. Um, yeah proclivity it's a human proclivity yeah. um and um so part of the i think part of what would be 
useful for us. Again, I'm, I'm really influenced by the design conversation here. But to think about ministry more as art than science, right? You know, hmm. art tends to have less right and wrong about it. There's better, there's worse, there's more beautiful and less beautiful. Um, but art is by definition, you know, um, evaluated in different ways and has a lot more latitude for doing things differently. Mm. And science tends to be more cut and dried, right? This worked, this didn't work, this hypothesis was proved, this hypothesis was disproved. Mm. And I think art is a better metaphor for ministry. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That, okay, that's like a little unsettling in some ways <laughs> because you think <laughs> about a church as it probably is tempted uh, to be a little more prescriptive with what youth ministry or ministry in general should look like. And I can imagine a youth minister coming in and having some artistic ideals about what ministry could look like. And that would be a hard pill to swallow. I mean, how do you measure that? How do you, how do you report to the session about that? Like, how do you do that in a way yeah. that uh, can still fit within the life of a congregation? And maybe this is why so few youth ministers are uh, sort of commissioned to experiment and innovate and therefore to have failure be a part of the experience. But man, like that's a tall order. And it's, there's also something beautiful about that. Well, I think part of it, you know, is our metrics for how we do ministry are generally screwed up by the fact that we borrow those metrics from um, every other field of enterprise accept ministry and relationships, right? Um, how you measure a relationship is a very different thing than how you measure, you know, um, giving units. And um, so we get caught up in the wrong metrics, I think. So one thing is we have to decide what we consider, um, not just success, but what, you know, what constitutes beautiful ministry? What, and, huh. and if we think about, ministry in terms of beauty as opposed to as opposed to um successful or effective is it beautiful and what is the, what are the markers of beauty in ministry i think that's a really interesting conversation and um i think it's one that congregations can get on board with because everybody has a has some kind of intuitive sense that you know when i'm part of a loving relationship um whether it's with God or with a, a loving adult or another peer, that's not something that I measure for its effectiveness. I measure yeah. it for its beauty. Yeah. And what are the things that I look for that make that relationship um, a thing of beauty for me? And um, it, it's just, it's a, it's a different prism angle to look at scripture, right? To think about, okay, well, we have achieved this or we have not achieved that, that Jesus wants us to, to do, um, as opposed to, you know, we have um, been able to approximate um, this beautiful thing that Jesus was about. Hmm. It's, it's, a, it's just, it, we use the same basic stuff, right? We just look at it. Emily Dickinson said, you know, you tell the truth, but tell it slant come at it from a different angle. <laughs> that's, that's amazing though. Like the idea, what are the markers of beauty? So like another way to reimagine um, evaluation, you mm -hmm. know, so yeah. our old evaluation metrics might be that you would send in a report that has a bunch of numbers on it. Um, but there's, and, and numbers matter. They tell a story, right? They, like, they reveal something, but they maybe aren't the whole story. And they definitely don't speak to beauty or a lack of beauty. Well, my favorite story about this is one I heard from Shannon Hopkins, who's a friend of mine who works in the innovation space in the UK. And she was telling a story about fundraising for the um, London Symphony. And apparently, um, you know, the London Symphony's typical way of uh, telling their patrons how the symphony was doing was to say, we, we had this many concerts, we had this many people, we sold this many tickets. Here's how full the auditorium was, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point, somebody said, you know, that's not really what we care about. We're a bunch of musicians. What really, what, what's really the thing 
that we care about. And the mm. musicians wound up being able to put their finger on it. And they said, well, we, we care about the number of standing ovations we get. Wow. And so with that information, and, and the audiences agreed with that. They, they got that, you know, what they really want is to come to a concert that's worthy of a standing ovation. Anyway, so at some point, the London Symphony began counting not butts and pews, but the number of standing ovations the orchestra got. And wow. <laughs> when they did that, their fundraising success rate went off the charts. People really responded to that because it was a metric for beauty. And that was something that felt appropriate, right, for a symphony to be measured by its beauty rather than mm. by its ticket sales. Uh, so to me, that's a metaphor and it's evocative. There, the I don't think there's a toolkit for how to do this yet. How do you how do you measure the transformation that God is about in young people? It's, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like you get answers that people say about art, right? Well, I don't know, but I know it when I see it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, as you're saying all that, I think to myself, that's why we tell stories. Yeah. You know, we tell right. stories about individual people, not groups or not necessarily, you know, a, a report about something that was said to a group or done with a group as much as we tell the story about one person and what this has meant in terms of the depth of, you know, beauty, pain, suffering, joy, hope, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, right. We tell deep, meaningful stories because it brings people closer to an encounter with that beauty that you're describing. Right. 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 Man. So, okay. We want people to be more open to failure and we want to help couch that in the way to measure this or to look at this is not necessarily wins and losses, but a pursuit of beauty. Um, and the idea of prototyping, I, I'm still so intrigued. I mean, even after our design retreat and after working with these congregations around the state of Florida within the Missing Voices Project, I'm still wrapping my head around what does it mean for us in the work of youth ministry to try and prototype? Have you, I mean, like, how are you helping people think about that? Well, I don't know how well I'm helping people do it, but in the spaces I've been in, I've seen a little bit of this um, change the way people are approaching youth ministry or in, in, in one case, young adult ministry. The um, So I was part of a project, um, not too much unlike Missing Voices, that was aimed at innovation for young adults and congregations. And, you know, we had a bunch of congregations that were all, you know, trying you know, new ways of building relationships with young adults. Hmm. And this one church, it was hilarious. First of all, the, um, the team was very young as our teams went. We were mostly dealing with 20-somethings, but several people on this particular team started um, when they were like 18 or 19. So they were young. And as a result, they were kind of fearless. They, they didn't they didn't really know a lot about the church budget or care a lot about it. <laughs> so when it came time, whenever something came up, they're like, okay, great. We're going to try that. And then they'd come to the next event that we'd have. And then you're like, they're you're like, yeah, that, that really didn't work. Mm -hmm. So then they'd go try something else. And so then, then that didn't work so well either. I don't think anything they did throughout the three year project worked <laughs> at the very last, um, gathering we had for this project it was about storytelling as a matter of fact one of the young people came up to me and said you know what we finally figured it out we finally figured out what this whole project was about it was getting us to it, they said we never had anything that worked but we're not afraid to try things it yeah. was getting us to be able to try things that was the point that was our project. It wasn't, the, it wasn't the product we developed for young adults. It was practicing what it was like to try and try again. Yeah. And yeah. I, I kind of have goosebumps even as I remember that because in my mind, that made that group the most successful group in that mm. particular project. Mm. Um, and um, I love the fact that uh, they were able to name that um, as part of the story that they told about what makes young adult ministry work in this congregation. Right. So. Yeah, because any solution that they might put forward is a solution for the moment. 
But the process itself and your ability to adopt the process as your own of trying, failing, learning, growing, trying again, that's that to me seems like the lifeblood of the church is that if we're going to wrestle with what it means to love our neighbor, it, it's going to mean that we have to translate that into every single new particular context, neighborhood, uh, person's life and person's story that we come across. So it's well, not that, necessarily yeah. about finding a solution, but rather being open to that way of thinking and loving. Well, and I think the way um, you said it is important that um, reframing um, failure as learning is a huge part of it. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I might. This is off the top of my head, but I can't think of any stories off the top of my head in scripture where the conclusion of the story is this person was an abject failure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's always, I mean, there were some that totally crashed and burned, right? But they aren't mm. described as failures. And those stories right. are told throughout the ages. Um, I had an Old Testament professor that said, you know, some of the stories in the Bible are so that we will do what they do. And some of the stories in the Bible are so that we won't do what they do. <laughs> you know? right, right. And so these stories of, you know, complete flaming out, you know, I think the idea is we probably don't want to repeat those mistakes. Right. Um, but nobody calls them failures. They're just things we learn from. Yeah. And so I think a lot of uh, our own anxiety about all of that is kind of trapped in the fact that we forget that failure actually is one of the best teachers we have. In fact, there's data on that. Um, that's something like, um, I can't remember the source for this right now, but the if, if you, there's like 10% of what you learn, you learn from um, success. And another 10% might be from doing things over and over and over again. But the rest of it is from mm -hmm. stuff that you try that doesn't work, you know? Yeah. So um, yeah. most learning comes from screwing up. And this is another really interesting little, little statistic while we're on it. Um, there has been some research that's been done about the sweet spot of failure. You learn the most when you fail um, 15% of the time. Huh. So in other words, if you get B's, you learn more than if you get A's. Interesting. <laughs> See, I feel so validated. <laughs> <laughs> See, mom? See, dad? <laughs> Okay, so unpack that. Like, what do you mean? Say more. Well, I think the idea is if you succeed 85% of the time, you have enough success to keep you motivated. Mm -hmm. But if you fail 15% of the time, you also have enough, you, you don't know everything yet, and you're willing to experiment a little bit more. So it's not debilitating um, rejection. But it is um, enough humility that keeps you in the game to learn more. That I mean, I don't actually know how the researchers um, themselves explained it. They more described it. Yeah. But that's my hunch. No, I mean that makes that makes good sense. It's it's so interesting though because what we lift up as success, and again, this goes back to success and metrics and what we think about that, I guess. But right. What we lift up as successful is the person who could bat a thousand, the person who's going to get a hundred every time because they've mastered right. the field. Well, another way of looking at that person is they've stopped growing mm -hmm. and they're not trying new things. They're not, you know, they're not going to continue to evolve as a person, um, which would be to me feels like death would feel really yeah. sad. Um, but uh, yeah, that's really, oh, you're going to mess me up with that one. Well, you know, I think about, um, was it Michael Jordan, you know, basketball great who decides to play baseball for a season right. and it turns out he's not very good at it. And so he got some blowback for that, but he also got some kudos for the idea that he was willing to take that risk. He was willing not to be the superstar. He was willing to exercise, literally exercise some muscles he hadn't exercised before. Right. And that leads to, you know, a lot more learning than if he had done nothing except do what he was good at. And so, um, yeah, well, I don't know what motivated him, but the youth minister that you're working with or the pastor, what is it that you have seen motivates them 
to push out from their area of expertise and, and what they've always been good at. Like we, we know this, we can pull this off without really thinking about it versus trying something where there's a chance at some real failure. Yeah. What motivates them to get there? Yeah, I, that's a great question. So um, let's think this through together. I think that that 85% statistic might be important here. I think if you feel like you absolutely um, are a total failure at your work as a youth minister, you are not going to keep trying. You're going to quit and go work at the bank, right? Mm -hmm. um, you are going to find something else because there's only so much punishment, you know, a person can handle. Sure. If you, if you succeed most of the time, but not all the time, I think that actually is motivating because you have enough taste of what this could be like if things work to want to figure out how to make other things work better. And, mm. um, people, this happens all the time, right? When you get into a situation where, um, the job is too easy, you succeed too often and you get bored. Yeah. You're not engaged. And, well, people will change a congregation or that you'll hear them say, well, you know, I think I've, I've given everything I can give here. or I've done, I've done everything I can do here. And what they're really saying is I don't have any more motivation to go beyond this here. Hmm. I've, I've, I've given what I've got and I'm not going to grow my toolkit. I'm going to go find another place to use it differently. Hmm. And sometimes it's the right decision. Sometimes it's the wrong decision, but um, I think we're all kind of wired to think that, you know, once we stop growing in a, in a professional situation, in a relationship, in a, in a ministry, um, in an educational situation, once we stop growing in it, um, we lose interest and we go do something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also think back in my own sort of personal experience in youth ministry, having some degree of success and feeling like I could do the work that was put before me and then coming into contact with young people who had not been included at any level and right. realizing, whoa, what I thought was success was a pretty narrow view of mm -hmm. the high school right, you know, or of the community. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden, maybe maybe I was just successful enough to be really naive, optimistic, and arrogant even to think I could figure this out over there as well and wherever the over there is, right? Like whether that's well, in I, different kids or whatever, but it, it gave me enough confidence to go out and be willing to try yeah. in some other spaces. I think the one thing that's easy to overlook when we're trying to figure out how to, um, how to grow and how to succeed, you know, in youth ministry is the people who, um, who, who were surrounded by. And the re the story that is in my head when I say that is, you know, I was blessed early in my ministry to work with actually two, um, very seasoned and very secure, um, male senior pastors. Hmm. And both of them were, and boy, the stories I can tell about this, both of them were experienced enough not to take on my failures as theirs. And mm -hmm. as a result, they did not try to save me. They let me make my mistakes. And then I had one say to me once explicitly, you made this mess, you go clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, uh, Sam Stanley in Virginia and Tom Bronco in Maryland, both of those guys shaped my ministry in very essential ways. They're both people I loved and trusted. Mm -hmm. And I knew they trusted me because they let me fail. Um, if they didn't trust that, they would have tried to come in and rescue it because, you know, they're, they're not going to sacrifice a whole congregation over some wet behind the ears, you know, new pastor. Sure. Sure. But they had enough confidence I'd figure it out. And that was, that was enormously... Um, confidence building and character building and um in terms of growth experiences those still rank among the most important ones and they were they were crash and burn experiences man and i had some doozies <laughs> early in youth ministry i would come back from conferences and I, I remember the kids in this one church 
they hated me coming back from conferences because all I would do is treat them as guinea pigs for everything I'd learned at the conference. <laughs> and I didn't have enough mileage at that point to realize that you can't just take whatever they roll out at a conference and just throw it on people without adapting it. No. And, you know, there, there's <laughs> this one, I managed to ruin a historic farmhouse where we had a retreat by some exercise I was trying to do from a conference that wound up with paint splattered all over historic wallpaper. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the kids were so, you know, it's one of those things where the kids minister to you kind of thing because they could see it coming and I couldn't. And they just watched in horror as the train wreck proceeded to <laughs> in front of them. And then nobody said a word after this paint went everywhere. And I mean, everywhere. Oh. Um, and Every one of them stayed up all night helping clean up. Yeah. Nobody talked about it. Nobody asked them. They just did it. And they knew I was in deep trouble. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So stuff like that, you know, it's, that's the kind of thing that the pastor probably should have said, you know, when you take a bunch of kids on a retreat, maybe a historic farmhouse is not the right place. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that's part of anyway. growing and learning and, and you had them, they were confident right. enough in themselves to allow you to fail. That's yeah, that, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I wonder, I, I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm sitting in my office looking at my whiteboard where I have these little cards uh, and on the cards, I see the faces of each of the lead innovators from the congregations that we're working with. Mm. And so I can see, you know, Here's Anthony, and he's working with, uh, you know, kids in this like mentoring, tutoring thing. And here's Jacob over in Gainesville. And Jacob is, you know, going to be doing some spoken word stuff in a community that, you know, has been uh, essentially abandoned by the city. And these, these folks are up here, Catherine, doing incredible work in Ponte Vedra uh, with the queer community. And I'm looking at them thinking, okay, they are going to try and do some things that, is going to fail on some level. Like there's going to be aspects of what they do that will include failure. What does it mean, like those pastors who worked with you, what does it mean for kind of the larger community of youth ministry to try and shift towards failure being an opportunity to grow and learn, but also to like pastorally care for one another and to see the fruit in that, even in the midst of failure itself? Like how do we be for each other when we're trying things that include failure? Well, yeah, the, so such great questions, Justin. I first thing that comes to mind is, man, don't do ministry alone. Mm. Um, I, I, it's it seems obvious, right? But um, if you got a few people in the boat with you, um, no, everybody doesn't fail at the same time, <laughs> and it matters that it matters that some people are you know, above water while some people are going under so that they can reach a hand down and pull the other ones up. Wow. And um, so, the you know, I don't know how you would ever do ministry solo. And I don't mean physically solo because, of course, there are some solo pastors. Right. But even in that case, you have you, you need a community that you're doing ministry with, even if you're not physically in the same space. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's the first thing. Um, I, I think that one of the skills that we would benefit from learning in youth ministry is how to manage expectations a little bit too. And, hmm. um, so this is more, this might be more for people who are in paid youth ministry positions. Um, but I, I think that it can be adapted for anybody, you know, typically a youth ministry position um, couldn't be filled by Jesus, right? It's got so many things going on <laughs> that are impossible to do. And so anybody who looks at a job description for a basic youth leader position, you know, looks at that and in their head, they're going, yeah, I can do like three of these things. The rest mm -hmm. of them, I'm not going to get to or whatever. And the, the only problem with keeping that to yourself is you don't know whether the thing that's at the bottom of your list is at the top of, you know, the Smith family list because their son or daughter last year um, died of a suicide or something. And so mental health is really important to them. It may not be so important to you, but it's really, 
front and center in this particular context. Mm. Um, so a really practical thing that I, somebody advised me to do this, I'm sure at some point that, um, cause I, I did this when I was serving in churches each, each year, Th- typically there's a personnel committee, right? So you take the job description and you list all of the things that are in it that you're supposed to do. And then you rank them Yeah. and you go one, two, four, five, six, and you go, all right. So, and then you're to your committee, you go, as I see it, these are the, these are the first three things I'm going to do. And then, um, we'll look at the next three and then the next three and you get the, the committee to kind of agree. They might, they might quibble with some of your priorities and then you might have to shift a few things, but everybody's on the same page of what your first two or three priorities are going to be. And what Hmm. that is, is permission to procrastinate on the others, which is just real. You're not going to get to all of them or you're going to do it and you're going to do a crappy job at it and people are going to be on your case for it. Hmm. But if you if you have this common understanding with the people that are guiding the personnel in your community, um, you know, then they back you for that. They're like, yeah, well, that she said she was going to do this, this, this first. And here's what's happened there. Right. Maybe next year. Well, and the point is, you go you go back to that list. It's an it's an evolving list. Job descriptions are never static. But if about once a year you have a conversation with your personnel committee about the priorities, that that's one way to manage expectations. I think that's brilliant, Kenda, because not only are you giving yourself permission to procrastinate on a few things, you're giving yourself permission to prioritize others, which might actually be sort of the green light to do some of this innovation, uh, even failing right. that we're talking about. Right. So if we all agree that, oh my gosh, we really got to tackle this one thing, um, and we know what we've been doing has not been sufficient, then we're a little more open to right. try to do. Good, yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And of course, you know, it speaks to what you said earlier about not being in the boat alone. Like you get everybody on the same page about your expectations, what we really want to try to pursue, what we're willing to put off for a moment. Um, then when you have tri- you know, tried something and you are risking if it doesn't go so well, you're all there together. That's right. that's interesting. That is a very practical, helpful thing, Kenda. Good job. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm more drawn to like the conversation about beauty, but I know there are youth workers who are like, this is great, Justin, but how the heck do I actually go do what we're talking about? <laughs> so hey, well, let's go back, let's go back to that for one second though. Because um I'm working um uh through uh an organization I work with called Ministry Incubators with a brilliant youth pastor in California. And um, they're trying to change the entire DNA of their congregation to become a change-making church. They've made a lot of headway on that. But mostly what they've been doing, and here's the way he put it. He said, we are not a change-making church. We're a church that has a change-making program, right? Hmm. And what what his goal, his name's Jeremy Steele. He's written some great books, if anybody wants to look them up. Um, his goal is to identify the guiding values of a change-making church and let that be the umbrella under which everything sits. And what that means, and so he's identified, I don't know, five or six different values. Like one of them is the world is worth loving, you know, hmm. was worth risking for. And so anyway, um, what we're going to do is we're going to get every Betty in the youth and children's ministries to throw on the board everything that they do and see which ones fall under those values yeah. and which ones don't. And it gives, and he, and what Jeremy's goal is, is to identify things that they're going to sunrise and things that they're going to sunset. You know, it wow. allows, it lets you let go of some things. If you have identified the guiding values under which you want your mission to fall. Now you can do that just for your youth ministry. Um, obviously you have a more coherent ministry throughout the church if the church does this together. Right. But if you can't get the church on board, at least do it for what's happening in your youth ministry. Because if it turns out that you have an Oktoberfest every year, not that you might notice this might come from personal experience. Um, <laughs> and that Oktoberfest has been going on for 50 years and uses up a boatload of volunteer hours every single fall. Like it's right. the dominant thing. Uh-huh. And you discover 
that at some point during the church's history, Oktoberfest stopped being um, a service support vehicle and be, just began began to be kind of a thing the church is known for. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if it doesn't fall on those values, you can get rid of Oktoberfest that way. Right. Or you can change it or you can pivot or, you know, because at that point, Oktoberfest is a failure. It does not promote the spirit of Christ that you are trying to promote in your community. Mm-hmm. So there are practical ways that you can get at some of the values like beauty that we were talking about. Right. Well, I mean, I wrote when you were talking about that earlier, I wrote markers of beauty, question mark. How do you know? And then I, I put underneath that. Well, these are value laden, you know, yeah. like your values and the things that you're consistently drawn to. If you can articulate your values, then you know the things that are beautiful. And the church that we're a part of, uh, hospitality has become one of our, uh, you know, little war cries, I guess. War cry. That's not the right way to say that. But, um, you know, gosh, that'd be an ironic war cry. Hospitality. War cry. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> but it's something that we've yeah. said, hey, you know, we want to be deeply shaped by the hospitality of Jesus Christ. And so right. out of that has come these two commitments this last year that I've seen that are in the works right now. One is that there is a middle school teacher who is building a gigantic skate ramp in the property behind his house. Wow. Which is helping to build it and say, hey, we want to um, help you as you practice hospitality to kids in your neighborhood and at the school that you teach at that's a block away from your home. And this teacher has this mentality of going and creating a space for kids. His name is Brennan. He's incredible. The other, the other cool. thing they're getting behind is this retired teacher who said, you know what, I'm done teaching. She's in her 50s. She's decided to open a surf school. And so she teaches kids how to surf. Oh, and wow. They cool. said, hey, we want to give you a bunch of scholarship money so that kids that would want to do something like that could go and do that. And so right. all of that, though, is born out of this clarity that said, hey, hospitality is sort of our lens through which we imagine the equipping of the saints. And if we want to equip the people in the church to go practice hospitality, it might mean surf schools. It might mean skate ramps. It might mean whatever. It doesn't even really matter. But we know it's beautiful because we've sort of planted our flag with hospitality. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. That feels good. (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting because I imagine you play that out. And then those people come back and they tell stories of people, not ideas, not theories, not skate ramps or surfing, but they tell stories of people and the way in which, you know, life on life has sort of occurred. And next thing you know, you're bearing witness to the kingdom of God. Well, I, I love that you said that because, again, I, I consider this a very practical kind of metric that is completely blown off by most congregations. But I think one of the most important metrics that we have to know whether we are affecting change um, in communities, in individual lives, is um, is have the have the stories people tell changed. What kind of stories are they are people in our community telling about young people? Hmm. Are they mostly about kids that are in trouble? Are they mostly about kids who are you know just a pain in the neck? Are they mostly about kids who are you know just um, underwater, or are they mostly about kids who are bearers of hope in some way? Uh, are they mostly about kids who have done something interesting? And when those stories change, that means the culture has changed. Yeah. And when the culture changes, then it's not about having a program that does something. It's saying, yeah, this is who we are as people. And hmm. that is a really strong metric. We're not very good at giving people opportunities to tell those stories. Um, And, you know, the media is not all that helpful either because they tend to err on the side of bad news. Right. Mm. um, But I do think that there is a way in which particularly given we're people of faith, right? We're people who tell stories. That's what, that's how faith happens. Right. Um, for us to say, all right, how, how are our stories changing? And what kind of story do we hope to hear at the end of this particular ministry that we're embarking on? That's a really good question. How have the stories that we tell, how have they been changing? I, uh, that's, I can't help but 
want to ask that question in a number of different places in my own life? That's a really good question. Huh. There you go again, Kenna, messing with me. <laughs> messing with me. Uh, it goes both ways. But isn't that funny, though? I mean, like, it really is. It's um, like, I, again, I'm looking at these faces on my whiteboard of churches who have said, hey, we want to try and uh, this one church in the land, they want to build a ministry with kids that are in the foster care system that live in right. a group home in mind. I bet if they go and they hang out at that group home for a year, the stories that they talk about on the regular are going to change. Well, I actually read the um, origin stories on the website for Missing Voices last night. Huh. And um, so there is a there is a starting point that all of your churches have. They've already mm. stated in some ways what it is, some more explicitly than others. But it would be really interesting to know, you know, how the story they tell at the end of the project about what they have seen in their congregation and in these kids' lives, how that story is different from the origin story. Um, you know, I mean, mm. and also, of course, they, they can get at that a little more explicitly if they design a way to do it. Right. Uh, yeah. So Kate and Mary, if you're listening, I think we're going to have to do what Kendall <laughs> talked about. <laughs> it's so good though, because I really do want, I do want these ministries to be um, provocateurs. You know, I want them to, I want to lift up these stories in ways that help other people imagine this in their own backyard. And yeah. I do think already just having been with these folks for a little over a year, um, it's just not hard to see that. And you can see the beginnings of it in their origin stories, like you said. But um, I imagine as they attend to it more and more, that'll be the case. And I and I hope that the churches that we work with here at Flagler and you know through this podcast or through the Youth Ministry Forum, through our students, that they will be the kind of people who go out with eyes to see and ears to hear very different stories uh, than, than maybe what you would hear more often than not. So well, I also think that the stories that really matter for you and for me and for anybody in youth ministry are the stories that the kids tell. Mm -hmm. You know, to here, here, this is a, a great little framing. I use it for, um, I've been in other groups that have used it too, but I use it for kind of as icebreakers when my students don't know each other yet. Um, you have three little prompts that frame a story and it goes like this. It used to be that dot, dot, dot. Then one day dot, dot, dot. And now dot, dot, dot. Hmm. It used to be then one day and now. Now that's not, that's not a faith testimony necessarily. It could be, mm -hmm. um, but it gets people in touch with just, you know, what is it? that has been pivotal in who I am and to be able to describe themselves in a storied way, uh, kind of get, it, it, it begins to lay some tracks, right? Um, you can go back to that again and again. Right. And, um, yeah. So I, I think that we can be better at helping people think about their, their journey with God in terms of the story that they tell. Huh. Um, Mandy Drury talks about testimony being a story, a personal story where God is one of the characters, mm -hmm. um, which is such a kind of a demystifying way to think about testimony. Right. Oh, I love how you're working that. It's so good. And you know, if your, your story doesn't start with God, but ends with God, that's a win. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Kenna, this is amazing. I think you've given us more than we can uh, handle to chew on here for one episode. Um, I wonder if you'd be willing to offer a blessing or a benediction or a charge of sorts to youth ministers who might be listening. And I think our, our I think our audience is typically youth ministers and youth ministry volunteers um, who really do want to attend to the lives of young people on the margins uh, who youth ministry for the most part, is, is kind of missed. And so this innovation conversation feels at home to folks like us because we're mm -hmm. trying to figure this out. How would you offer this blessing or benediction of sorts? 
Well, let's see what happens. Let's pray. Gracious God, take this community that you have gathered here for this conversation. People who've been at this for years, people who have started last week. And what binds them together is their ability to kind of notice things that other people don't notice and notice young people that other people don't notice and see in those young people the beauty that lies within them that you have created. So God, we ask that for this group of people trying their level best to do what you've called them to do, that you give them eyes to see that beauty, that you give them voices to share, to tell others that they've seen that beauty, to tell the person that they're working with how they are beautiful. And that they are able to release and let go the need to impress, the need to succeed, the need to make a difference even, and set all that stuff aside just to be able to sit in the presence of these young people and enjoy their beauty. God, you measure us in ways we can't imagine. And in your measure, the cup is always overflowing. We give you thanks for your grace, for your beauty, and for your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen to that. Nothing to add other than my gratitude. Thank you, Kenda, for your time, for being a voice for so many of us in youth ministry that uh, you've you've been an anchor to so many. So we're grateful for you and your witness and your friendship. Thank you. Thank you so much to today's guest. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Missing Voices podcast. If you are loving these episodes and want to be one of the first to hear about a new episode being released, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. And you can also check us out on Instagram and Facebook and see what we're up to in St. Augustine at Flagler College Youth Ministry.